You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm Chad Dundas. That's Ben Folks. We meet here every single week to chop up all the prominent, newsworthy, and hilarious happenings in the world of mixed martial arts. Ben, how you doing this week? Got a little bit of a UFC 252 hangover, to be honest we did with it. you. We did we it. Did. The experts did. said it couldn't be done, and here we went out and uh, finished the biggest piece of ongoing business we've had in this sport for a while. And we also managed to make it at least a little bit weird. Oh, the weird from start to finish, especially if you include the uh, the Sean O'Malley injury. Well, yeah. It's just like a kind of weird stuff all the way around. As potentially could be expected, we got an awful lot of listener mail this past week, uh, or the past couple of days, I should say, concerning uh, UFC 252, probably a, a, a uh, largely widely watched pay-per-view wrapping up the Stipe Miocic, Daniel Cormier heavyweight title trilogy with a unanimous decision win for Miocic, who moves forward having retained the title uh, into a brave new heavyweight picture that looks a lot like the old heavyweight picture, in fact. Uh, So we we thought what we would do is this today, Ben. We we thought that you and I would open up with some introductory comments regarding the heavyweight title fight. And then we're going to move through as much of this listener mail as we can, sort of a, a de facto all questions considered episode of the co-main event podcast since we got so much mail uh from the fine listeners our beloved listeners out there a couple of housekeeping notes administrative notes before we move on uh if you haven't already go grab a copy of the blaze that's my new novel a mystery and thriller you can go get it wherever fine books are sold if you do have it and you've read it and you enjoyed it please leave me a five-star review over at amazon or goodreads or wherever you read your books uh those reviews help me they help the book so do me a favor Buy, read, rate, and review The Blaze wherever is best for you. Uh, How about like four stars? I mean, five. No. Five stars, that's a lot of stars, man. I I don't want no four-star ratings. I want the top shelf five-star rating, folks. See, I got to reserve my five-star for like the top. Like those are my Grishams, man. Like those those are my Grishams. Those are my my Michael Crichtons. You tell me you don't consider me up there with Grisham and Crichton? The rating system has to mean something. It has to mean something. Yeah, it has to mean the Blaze is a five star book. That's what it, it has is. A to five mean. star book. It's. I'm just. I'm obviously just joshing with you. I've read it. It's a five star book. Uh, we're going to start the Watchmen rewatch podcast this week over on the Patreon page. That's for the ten dollar patrons. If you are currently a member, you can catch check that out. Check that out over at Patreon.com/slash/GoMainEvent. If you are not a member. We would appreciate it if you went over there and joined the team. Keep the podcast rolling. Keep the discourse unfettered. And uh, we'll all just roll into a brave new future where we'll all be friends and we'll never grow old. It'll be great over on the Patreon page. That sounds beautiful. All right, Ben, let's talk here about the third fight between Stipe Miocic and Daniel Cormier. Uh, I think a great fight. I don't know that there would be any debate about that. Probably the best of the three. Uh, as I said, Stipe Miocic emerges with a unanimous decision victory. We think 
It could be Daniel Cormier's last fight. It was promoted that way. He recently, he took to Instagram, I believe, today to post a message of thanks to his family and his team and the fans. He said it's been a hell of a ride. He noticeably and noteworthily did not discuss the future, didn't say that he's retiring, didn't say this was the last one. If you wanted to read it that way, it had the ring of sort of a final statement, but we all know how these things go in this sport. It can be awful dang hard to walk away. Let's start just with your uh, overall impressions of the fight. And then I know we got some specific things we want to get into here, but what just what did you think overall of this uh, five round affair between Stipe Miocic and Daniel Cormier? Yeah, I I really went into this fight wondering, you know, after they met twice and each guy made some adjustments as they went, what was going to be different and what was going to be the same in this fight? What does each side think that they've learned? And it was interesting to me that Daniel Cormier, he's still basically catching Stipe with that same right hand that he knocked him out with in the first fight. And it's just not knocking him out anymore. And Stipe talked about that a little bit afterwards where, uh, like, asked, what's the difference? And he was just basically like, well, now I'm kind of ready for it. Like, it, it caught you by surprise in the first one. And the surprise was maybe a part of why it dropped him the way it did. This time, he's kind of used to it, but it's still there for Cormier at the end of those exchanges. like He's still kind of initiating that clinch with the the arm over kind of thing, around, uh, grabbing him around the head, letting Stipe have the underhook, and then getting him to move into that right hand. And he was still catching him with that right hand at the end of a bunch of exchanges. It just didn't really seem to be bothering Stipe that much. I mean, he did get kind of wobbled, uh, I believe, in the first round where it kind of caught him behind the ear. But other than that, you know, Stipe did a really good job of neutralizing Cormier up against the fence. He, it seemed like in the second fight, it kind of learned, okay, if I can be the, you know, use my size on him up against the fence where I don't really have to worry about, you know, him popping under me for a takedown, I can squeeze him there, wear him down a little bit, hurt him in close there. And I was impressed with the way like Stipe just managed to control so much of the fight. It, it felt like Cormier very much having to dance to Stipe's tune for pretty much the entire fight. And I, I was really wondering what the judges were going to do because I came away from that being like, man, that to me, it looks like Stipe won almost all those rounds. And I, when I looked at the judges scorecard, we've talked before about sometimes even when the judges give you the same scores, like I don't think there was any agreement really. Uh, I, all three judges scorecards for this one look way, way different. Did you think there's any question about who, who won that fight? Um, I, no, I thought that like Miocic pretty clearly emerged with the unanimous decision win. It's what I was expecting and it's what we got. Although I thought it was a pretty close fight. Like, uh, in many of those rounds I thought were pretty close, but I did think, see, I think I probably would have had it 48, 47, which is what two of the judges had it. And then one had it 49, 46. But, uh, I thought that it was, it was, a. Uh, it was a very entertaining fight. It was a tense fight from start to finish. In many ways, it was an action-packed fight. Uh, I thought that the judges rendered the, the the proper verdict. But I did want to ask you this, and this will get us into our more granular, detailed discussion of this fight. So we've seen Daniel Cormier and Stipe Miocic fight three times now over the course of about two years, and they've fought more or less 10 or 11 full rounds against each other. Do you feel like this trilogy yielded definitive answers for us? Did you come out of this thing feeling like, okay, that is settled. We know who the better fighter is. We can move on to new business. Because I got to be honest with you, I feel like coming out of this third fight, I felt like I almost have more questions than I have answers at this point. And some of that had to do with the groin shots and the eye pokes. 
uh, and how you scored those first two rounds. But I honestly feel like even though Miocic is going to emerge from this thing, having won two in a row, the two and one quote unquote winner, if you will, of the trilogy, and he will still have the heavyweight title. And I'm sure uh, people will will laud him far and wide as the greatest UFC heavyweight or the greatest MMA heavyweight of all time. I honestly feel like if these two guys fought a hundred rounds, that they might split them, that it might be 50-50. Or if Miocic is going to get an advantage, maybe it would be 55-45 or something like that. Like I just think you have two very, very evenly matched heavyweights in this trilogy. And I honestly, after I watched the fight, I thought, man, I don't know if if through three fights I feel like I learned a ton or I have a, a real definitive answer about who's the better guy here. Yeah. Well, first of all, to correct you on a fact, Chad Dundas, two judges had it 49-46. One judge had 48-47. Oh, okay. And okay. one thing that I think is kind of telling was as they're standing there listening to the scores, when Cormier hears two 49-46s, he starts shaking his head and looking upset. And it seems like that's when he knew that he did not win it, that they were going to give it to Stipe. And to me, that like if you hear... The, the judges had it four rounds to one for one guy, and you know automatically that that couldn't have been you. That you, you know, you, you, there's no way your performance could have been. You thought it was good enough to win, but there's, you, there's no way even you could talk yourself into believing that somebody gave you four of the five rounds. Then that tells you something about like how, how at least like you were picturing a victory coming on the scorecards in that fight that you knew like if you were going to win it, you were going to win it by a very narrow margin. And uh, when you hear that they somebody had it as not so narrow and you know it was the other guy, it's kind of like you saying like, okay, like you, you, you're in a way acknowledging that he probably deserved to win that decision. I, I mean, I did come out of there. Like when you mentioned them talking about uh, fighting a hundred rounds, my question would be, does Daniel Cormier continue to age at the same rate over the course of that- those 100 rounds? I think we do it in the IBM research lab. So okay. <laughs> it's a completely sterile environment. There's yeah. no dust. There's no wind. And uh, it's suspended animation. Everyone is the same age that they are. I mean, clearly, if we if they have to fight on and on into infinity where everyone ages, Stipe Miocic probably gets the uh, the advantage of a few years there on Daniel Cormier. So in my hypothetical, I think that they are ageless wonders. Because I kind of feel like this fight was – the best one of the three for Stipe, right? Because like, he he wasn't really winning in the second fight until he took over later in the rounds as Cormier started to slow and as he started to work the body. The first fight, you know, he was doing all right and then got caught there at the end of the first. This one, I felt like he's still, like he he takes some punches here or there, but I felt like he was, had much more of a unified game plan that you could see early on that was pretty much the same through the fight. And he, he controlled way more of the fight this time. And it seemed to me like maybe the version of Daniel Cormier that we have in 2020 is different from the one that was there in 2018, just because he, you know, he's at that age where there's a big difference for a lot of fighters between 39 and 41. And yeah. I, I don't know. I felt like if the, well, I came out of it feeling like, Stipe wins that trilogy. Stipe deserves to win it. Like he deserves to be thought of as the better fighter between the two of them, at least in the span of time that they competed against each other. Like if the trilogy had begun three years sooner or something, then maybe it's a different story. But these versions of this, these guys, I feel like if they are going to fight 
you know, if they were to turn it into like a best of seven series, I think Stipe kind of takes over from this point. So you're saying if they fought 100, 100 rounds, we might see Stipe Miocic uh, extend his lead, that maybe the first 25 of them would be split. And then slowly but surely, you got Miocic starting to win more. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I, a, that's a good answer. I'll accept that. I really came away just impressed with a lot of the stuff that Stipe was able to do in this fight. The figuring out what to know of the eye poke thing. Like yeah. that's that's where we get into a bit of a sticky wicket. Chad Dundas. I thought about this though. I seem to remember. Remember when we watched John Jones and Anthony Smith and then we showed up on this podcast the Monday afterwards and you were like, we all owe Anthony Smith a thank you. Like we should all be sending him a thank you card because if he takes that illegal knee and stays down and gets a disqualification victory, which he absolutely could have pulled off and done, then he mires the light heavyweight division in this struggle where then we have to go and do a rematch and it's going to take months. And instead he, he takes the foul kind of grits his teeth through it and says, all right, God damn it. And then gets back up and continues losing. Like he knew at that point that he was probably going to lose. I wondered does the MMA community owe a similar thank you to Mark Goddard and Daniel Cormier? Because it's not hard to imagine like a situation where he actually sees that eye poke. We stop it. We get a doctor in. The eye looked bad pretty quickly. Like, is it feasible that if Mark Goddard had seen it, called time, got a doctor in there to check Daniel Cormier out, that then the doctor realizes he can't see out of that eye. It's you know visibly worsening. And we have ourselves a no contest and all we had all this build up and now we just got to hit the reset button and do it again. Yeah. See, that's one of the reasons why I, I feel like I come out of this trilogy, not necessarily thinking that I got definitive answers because, you know, I think eye pokes theoretically changed the trajectory of both of these last two fights. Obviously it was Cormier poked Miocic in the eye in the second fight. They both kind of poked each other in this third fight, but the the third fight itself almost has no good outcome after the eye poke, after, after Cormier's eye poke, because if you stop the fight and declare, you know, either a no contest or Miocic the winner, I'm not sure exactly what the rule said we would say we, we should do there. Like that's, terribly unsatisfying, especially in a in the third fight of a heavyweight title trilogy and in perhaps the final fight of Daniel Cormier's career. Maybe we're coming back to do this thing again. And if you don't see it and you don't stop the fight or you don't address the eye poke, then you got Daniel Cormier out there fighting two full rounds with, as it turns out, a torn cornea. He can't see it all out of one eye. And so you leave me with these questions. Like, I'm not going to go as far as to say that that would have been a different fight had Cormier not been poked in the eye. I think like you can't take it away from Miocic. He definitely deserved to win this. But at the same time, you're definitely, you definitely got a guy out there who's fighting uh, at a disadvantage after that. And so that's why I say, man, we move out of these three fights and I still feel like if these dudes fought 50 times, they might split them. Cause I just feel like they're very evenly matched. The, uh, the, all of the, most of the fights have been incredibly competitive, even, you know, the second one kind of went back and forth. And the one that uh, Cormier won by knockout, Miocic seemed like he was getting the upper hand in the very early going of that one. I just think it's kind of like back and forth. And so uh, I almost feel like mixed martial arts is uniquely positioned to provide these kind of outcomes yeah. for one reason or another, just because the propensity for eye pokes, the the possibility for any and all weirdness to occur in these fights uh 
And to have it happen in a fight of this magnitude that means so much to a guy like Daniel Cormier and will mean a lot to the rest of the career of Stephen Miocic is just very strange and very uh, – I'm not going to say sad, but it's just very weird that this sport seems to produce these kind of happenings so often. And now if this is the last fight for Daniel Cormier and we're just going to uh, move forward with Miocic as champion and he's going to fight, you know, Francis Ngannou or somebody like that, like we're just going to – we'll just accept this. We will accept that the fact of life in mixed martial arts is that shit can happen along the way that just turns it into a very different fight than you might have gone in expecting or a very different fight than it might have been had that not happened. Yeah. So you're saying for you, as soon as the finger goes into the eye, the your your clean environment at the IBM lab is destroyed. Yeah, you, well, there's no positive outcome at that point, right? Unless like Daniel Cormier uh, fights his way back from all of these uh, instance of, instances of adversity and wins this fight. At that point, you're like, oh my God, legendary performance or whatever. But because that didn't happen at this point now, uh, we have this outcome, which I think is probably final. I don't think these guys fight again. I don't know if Daniel Cormier fights again at all, but there's a, it's always there's always going to be that eye poke, man. It's always going to be out there as a thing. And Daniel Cormier is probably going to think about it for the rest of his life. Yeah, but uh, it's especially though interesting, like when it's a fight where eye pokes have loomed over this entire trilogy. Basically, they've been a currency yeah. in this thing. Uh, and you know, DC, DC pokes Stipe here. Uh, Stipe pokes DC. Even if you go even and look at the picture that captures the moment where Stipe's fingers go into the eye, and you can see in that one that it's bad because it's there's there's a lot of his finger you can't see in that in that moment, and you know that's because it must be in Daniel Cormier's eye. But even Cormier has his fingers outstretched, and they're just not quite reaching Stipe. It, I, is it just because like, okay, this one was immediately apparent how bad it was and the, the vision was clearly very affected like right away because any guy I poke is going to be like, you know, you ever been poked in the eye by a toddler just flailing around while you're trying to dress him? Like it, it'll compromise you a little bit. Uh, like even if it's not that one where you can nap at like immediately see how damaged the eye is. It seems like, like if we declare the results of any fight in which there is an eye poke at some point, like essentially null and void or like that we can't take any real lessons away from it, that might be a whole lot of fights that we're crossing off the list. Are we prepared I, I to agree. do that? I agree. Well, I mean, this was a bad one though. This yeah. wasn't even really run of the mill eye poke. Like to find out Daniel Cormier may need surgery after this is, is pretty scary. Uh, but no, I understand what you're saying. Like, and it's not, that's why I say it's almost just like the the default position of this sport, or like the landscape of this sport produces these weird outcomes. Where it's like, I don't know, man. If 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 you fought this thing in a controlled environment where you could ensure that there were no like weird extracurricular happenings, but maybe you get a different result. I don't necessarily think that was the case in this fight, but it's just a it's a weird thing that so often in this sport, I feel like though that's part of the story, is that we're coming yeah. out of this trilogy. We have to be done with it now, but there's there's going to be extenuating circumstances, whether it be an eye poker or or something like that, something else. Uh, ben, let's. I wanted to ask you about strategy here because, like we said, it was fascinating to watch these two guys uh, make adjustments, not only from fight to fight, but during each fight, they were both doing a lot of little things to kind of try to neutralize the other guy and give each other uh, the upper hand. And yet, what about the strategies we saw in we saw in this third and, and final fight? 
I, when it was over, I had, I, I was, I found myself asking myself questions like, why didn't DC wrestle more? You know, he got that takedown very early in the first, uh, that seemed like it was easily successful for him. Miocic obviously got right back up. Then later Cormier said Miocic was making him, making it difficult on him to, to get those same moves. But I just wondered like, why didn't DC wrestle more? Why was Stipe Miocic's best body work in the first round? He didn't give up on the body shot, but he wasn't quite as dogged about going after it throughout the rest of the fight. You know, when Stipe did clinch, he did it in the third round, which which was, you know, arguably let DC kind of recover from nearly being knocked out in the second. Like I thought, while you have two master technicians and, and, and you know, two really uh, – in experienced corners here going after it. Like I, after I'm done with this fight, like I said, I'm left with a lot of questions. Like if you're Daniel Cormier, do you spend the rest of your life being like, I should have gone after a couple more singles. I should have, yeah. I should have gone in on a couple more singles than I did. Yeah. I wondered about that, especially if part of it was that he was concerned about managing his energy levels. That obviously he mentioned some stuff about, having to do with the second fight like he felt like he didn't train as hard as he could have just because he was worried about injuries and he wanted to just stay healthy and make it to the fight but that this one he was training hard we talked about maybe overtraining when he showed up looking pretty tired in that interview a week before the fight but i think that i was wondering at least while watching it if he is thinking like okay i need to manage my my cardio levels to make it through this fight like i can't yeah. fade late in it and then get have him open up to the body again, like he did last time. Like, and it takes a lot of energy to go out there and wrestle guys, especially if you know you don't feel like you can finish them on the mat. Like if you feel like the point of the wrestling is I can get him down. I'm neutralizing his offense. I can beat him up a little there. And, but mainly what it's doing for me is it's winning rounds, but like, I'm probably not going to submit him. I'm probably not going to finish him there. Like I can see how, if you're kind of doing the math on that, you're wondering if you have that in you, like to to do enough of that, or do you expend so much energy trying to get this big guy down, then trying to keep him there, that uh, you know by the fourth or fifth round, if he starts digging those body punches in again, do you you come up empty? Yeah, that, that that's a solid point. Uh, do we feel comfortable now with Stipe Miocic's place in this sport? Is he? universally regarded as the greatest UFC heavyweight of all time. I think the argument of him as the greatest MMA heavyweight of all time is, is flawed perhaps, or at least there's, there's a discussion that could be had there about Fedor Emelianenko, but like did Stipe Miocic prove a great deal to you in this trilogy? And now are you, do we look at him and do we think he's, he has solidified himself as the heavyweight goat, the Emma, the UFC heavyweight goat, if nothing else. Yeah. I mean, I already thought he was pretty damn good. And then to go out there and win this and kind of just close up that trilogy uh, as the guy who, who won two out of three. Yeah, that does, that does really impress me and just impresses me all around what kind of fighter he is. Like if you're trying to come up with a game plan to go after Stipe at this point, how do you do it? Because it's the guy does not have a whole lot of vulnerabilities. He can do, he's you know a big guy, but also an athletic guy. Uh, he can stand there and trade punches with you. He can wrestle a little bit. Like there's just not a whole lot of weaknesses you see in that guy. Like we've talked before about that, how the thing that made George Saint Pierre really great was that he just became a high level wrestler later on in life after not really having a background in that just decided to add that to his, his quiver. And then he could go in there and he could just pick whatever you were worst at 
and know that he would be better at it and could exploit you there. And Stipe, not quite GSP-like in that way, but like if he fights somebody like Francis Ngannou, he can just single leg the hell out of him all day long to avoid having his head knocked off. If he fights somebody you know who was a, a slicker puncher or something, he can take him down and he can wrestle him there. Like I don't. I, when I look at a lot of the guys who are likely contenders, you know, sometime in the near future to fight Stipe, I have a hard time imagining how any one of them matches up well enough to beat him. Well, if it's Francis Ngannou, we know what the game plan is. Yeah. Yeah. And we know that you don't necessarily have to have a weakness to lose to Francis Ngannou. You just need to have the frailty of the human form. That's right. You need to be a mortal man. Just need to have a jaw out there. Like, I don't have a particularly hard time (laughs) believing that uh, if Ngannou and Miocic fought again, that Ngannou could knock him out. Like, yeah. I think Miocic, Miocic will, should and, and will be the favorite in that fight. But like any man, any man can can get taken down, especially when you got the the fists of Francis Ngannou flying at your at your face. Do you think that's a more competitive fight now, either because Francis Ngannou is better or that he's just seen it once already from Stipe and so has, can be a little bit better prepared? Do you think like – because I saw already like odds coming out where Francis Ngannou was a, listed as a favorite over Stipe like in a potential rematch, you know, despite the fact that he was beaten pretty soundly in the first one. Do yeah. you think it's significantly a different matchup now than it was then? I think it's different because you give Francis Ngannou some more starts against Miocic. Like that's all he needs is, is a start where he's standing up. And you, you talk to that guy's uh, coaches, Francis Ngannou's coaches, and they will ra- also rave about his fight IQ and how good he is at like picking up new – skills and how he's one of those guys that like not only does he only do you only have to show him something once but you can see him sort of like immediately incorporated into his game so if you told me that Nganu had you know was either more wary of the takedown or had better takedown defense now than he did a couple years ago I would believe it uh and he doesn't need too many doesn't need to stuff too many perhaps to get the win so uh it's a fight that I would be interested to see for sure a rematch I don't think it's a foregone conclusion that Miocic just can do the same thing and wins by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, so, so I would like to see it is, should Ngano be the betting favorite? Mm, I don't know about that. Like he has a, he has as good a chance as anybody in the world of, of winning by knockout, but that's, that might be the only way, right? Yeah. I'm, yeah. I don't see him pulling off a, a Kimura off his back to beat Stipe Miocic. Let's say that. Not to sidetrack the discussion. Okay. I think I know where we're going just by that intro. Yeah. I, I, you going to say I the name Johnny Bones don't. Jones? No, but we, I will in a moment. Okay. I was going to say, I was going to make a more provocative statement than that. Oh, all right. Well, whew, let me reset myself and get ready for, to receive a provocative statement. I'm going to, this is here. I'm going to put just saying stuff up on the, uh, okay. on you the know. video feed here since that's what I'm doing. <laughs> just, just so people know uh, not to take this provocative statement right. too. Don't take it seriously. Okay. Provoke away. I think Prime Fedor beats Stipe. Oh, God. Oh, my God. That's what we're doing. That's what we're doing. I did it. I did it. That's what we're doing. Um, I disagree. I do not think Prime Fedor beats Stipe. That's fine. I think that the game done changed a lot since then. Like, I think Fedor out there. Yeah. Even when he was at his best, like light on the toes, hands, you know, hovering around the waist, looking there to come in there and throw those those murder balls. I think Stipe's size, his striking ability, I think he he 
I think he does what Andre Arlovsky looked like he was on his way to doing against Fedor before he decided, you know what? And now I'm going to finish it off with the coup de gras, a jumping knee. Like <laughs> that, that wasn't prime Fedor, though. Okay, that was tail end. When do, what do you consider? What that year? Was the, that was the end. That was the end of prime Fedor. Are you thinking 2006? Uh, I think it's. I think it's possible that you've gone Miocic crazy. I think it's possible that uh, possible that you you're burning a little torch over there. That you've got uh, a shrine built in your bedroom. Well, I just think I've now after seeing him fight ten rounds against Daniel Cormier, who is essentially modern Fedor, uh, just in terms of like body type style. Like obviously Cormier has better offensive wrestling. Cormier has better technical boxing. I think Prime Fedor is probably faster and has more power. Uh, seeing the extent to which Daniel Cormier was able to get to Stipe Miocic's face over the course of three fights, I think that those murder balls from uh, the Russian find their mark at some point in the early going. If again, we could have this thing in the IBM test lab with like a 27-year-old Fedor Emelianenko, I think he lands one. I think that uh, Miocic is uh, – he gets knocked out. Do you there, think- I said it. Okay. Just going to put the just saying stuff back up put on the screen. Put it back up there. Put it back up there. Uh, do you think Prime Fedor beats Prime Daniel Cormier? As Interestingly long as enough, probably not, right? See? Because okay. it's, it's like a it's a matchups thing, though. It's just a different matchups thing. I think Cormier probably uh, like handles the skill set better and like has the different has different tools. And then and like again, since we're having just a completely outlandish and ridiculous discussion, like. It would depend on how he approached the fight, right? Like if Cormier went out there doggedly uh, intent on wrestling Fedor Emelianenko, he would have a better shot than if he was at the pre-fight press conference being like, I need to fight this guy like he was against Miocic. Yeah. Um, we're going to get into some of these listener mails. There's, there's one in particular that I see here that I would like us to discuss. Okay. We'll bring bring it out. Is it the one that's going to make me mad? Uh, I Who knows what that one is? Faf de Klerk. That's that's what it says here. I'm just gonna let that's, the, just gonna hang that out there. After his second loss to Stipe Miocic, Daniel Cormier said he doesn't want to be fighting anymore unless it's for titles. But going out like this just doesn't seem right. A thought occurred to me with John Jones tweeting about going up to heavyweight. Maybe the UFC could motivate DC to go back down to light heavy and challenge Dominic Reyes, the man who many, myself included, think beat Jones. It might even be for a then vacant light heavyweight title. This would give DC a shot at riding off into the sunset successfully. And surely Reyes is the next best thing to a final shot at Jones. Would love to hear your thoughts on this as an option for DC. Are there any other fights out there for him? Please discourse. Now, the thing I find interesting about this is not that I think that I think it's a unlikely scenario to see Jones move up at the same time. DC is like, okay, I'm back, but only if I can fight for light heavyweight title against him. Like something about that just seems a, a bridge too far for me. But even thinking through the scenario makes me think, are we just going to keep doing this to Daniel Cormier? Like, does he have to just really wait it out or just tell us something like that seems final enough. Are we just going to refuse to believe him when he says that he's done fighting? See, and this again comes back to the sport being so weird, right? The lesson that we learned from Michael Bisping is that you can't just keep coming back looking for the perfect ending, right? Because too much weird shit can happen. Yep. There can always be an eye poke. There can always be a groin strike. Strike. You can slip on a decal on the canvas and get knocked out by Chuck Liddell. Uh, okay. Sorry, just the Randy Couture fan just, in me just can't let it go. Yeah, 
Now let's talk uh, about some shrines in somebody's bedroom. <laughs> uh, that's the thing. Like, what are we looking for from DC? Like, we're going to keep bringing him back till he gets the perfect ending? Is that what we would do? Because that seems unfair. And it seems unfair to, like, lower the bar in some way to be like, uh, well, he we he fought Jones twice. Like, he lost to Jones twice. He, he lost the Steve Miocic trilogy. How about we get him Dominic Reyes? Yeah. Maybe I, that's a win for DC. I got that. He's not that kind of dude. And frankly, like he's too good for that. Like probably the best uh, way forward, the best outcome here is if this is Daniel Cormier's last fight. Cause I don't know. I don't know what you do if, uh, if you bring him back. Well, see, that's why I kind of wish he hadn't phrased it that way. I know is right after the fight, the, the bummer is fresh in your mind and you know, you can't see out of one eye. And so it's unfair to, pick apart the guy's wording too much but the way he put it uh like as this question points out was like i don't see myself fighting anymore unless it's for titles and i don't see myself getting another title fight after, you know with the way this one ended and when you put it like that it sounds like you're saying i won't fight anymore unless and then you invite people to come up with a scenario in which the unless is fulfilled like it would, it would have been better if if his intention is not to fight him, to just be like, that's it for me. Like I, I have no interest in fighting anyone for anything, for any reason, at all anymore. And yeah, I don't know. I like I kind of wonder when I see him like make some of these statements and stuff. I'm like, is that what we need from Daniel Cormier for us to finally just let him alone? Especially because he's going to be around, you know, like he's going to be like commentating, and we're going to see Daniel Cormier. He's still going to be in that world. We've talked before about how does that increase or decrease your likelihood to be talked into it again, kind of like being a recovering alcoholic who works in a bar. Right. I don't know. But like I I also don't want to see us just pester the guy and keep trying to offer up different avenues for him until he comes back and fights when it seems like, you know, obviously it's not the the storybook ending, not, not the way you wanted that whole thing to go, but I don't. I don't think storybook endings are a real enough thing in MMA most of the time to take all those risks just to pursue that. Yeah. I mean, like I said, probably the best thing is that we let Daniel Cormier have his life. And I think, you know, maybe we're lucky that Daniel Cormier seems to have other things in his life. He's a high school wrestling coach. He has this uh, UFC commentary job. He doesn't seem like the kind of guy who, who depends on fighting as like his his one outlet in life to get everything that he needs like cormier is is a little bit more of a varied personality than that like clearly he loves the competition uh and if, if he felt like i think if he felt like he could still compete at that level that championship level that he wants to compete at maybe he would have some more fights but uh he like people can i think you can take issue with stuff that daniel cormier has said over the years especially re- recently with his his comments on fighter pay but I feel like he's a real hard guy to just like dislike. And the, yeah. like, even if you don't, even if he's not your favorite fighter, like I think that we should all respect him enough and like him enough to like, you know, as you said, leave him alone or let him at least let him call his own shots. Uh, you know, I, I hadn't, when I was trying to think of like what happens next in the day, you know, on Sunday after I watched this fight, I was, I was trying to think of, okay, what happens next? I did not think of Cormier going back to light heavyweight to fight Dominic Rez for a vacant title, which is an interesting idea of nothing else. I don't necessarily know that that would be what they would do, but like if John Jones does move up to heavyweight, like, and you knew, you knew that something was afoot on fight night when he 
tweeted the thing that was like, let's go DC, right? When he, when Jones tweeted like yeah. DC is a warrior. And then a few minutes after that, he tweeted, let's go DC. Uh, that was at the point where we were like, okay, plot twist. What, what's happening here? What choose your own adventure book is John Jones currently living out in his own mind? Uh, if John Jones is, is serious and intent on going to heavyweight and the UFC can give him the money that he requires to do that, and you are UFC matchmakers, not if you are Ben Folks and Chad Dundas, because I think we want different things for Daniel Cormier at this point. But would you consider Miocic versus Nganu for the title and Cormier versus Jones at heavyweight if you were the UFC? See, when I saw John Jones being very online, being very active on the social medias during UFC 252, I felt like, Shit, here we go again with this. Because I just, you can kind of map out exactly how it's all going to go, where he's going to really uh, insert himself into this conversation. We're going to want to see him in that conversation. We're going to come out of it talking about how John Jones fits into the, the picture, regardless of wh- whoever won that trilogy fight. And then in the end, he's probably not going to go up because the UFC is not going to give him any more money. Like that's that's the pattern we've been in for years now. Like where he will tease this possibility yeah. to get us interested in it, maybe to try to show the UFC, look how much interest there is in it every time. Like I bring it up, a lot of social media engagement, as they might say, with the idea, trying to prove to them that it's worth uh, more money, and it just doesn't seem like the UFC is going to budge on that. And until there is like movement from the UFC on it, I think that we're all just doing the same dance that we've been doing for a few years now. Doesn't it also seem like the John Jones holdout has kind of uh, petered out in exactly the way maybe we thought it would? Like, because last we heard from John Jones, he was piecing out the UFC and he was going to take a long respite. He was going to have a long period of reflection and, uh, you know, family obligations and, and little else. Fast forward a few months. I don't feel like we got the we heard much story in between these two points. Suddenly he's like heavyweight. Here I come. Right. Like, <laughs> well, what what where are we at? Where what happened, John? Did you just you just had to sit home and think about it for a while? Like, I feel like it's the most predictable end. If the if it does indeed happen, the most predictable end to like the John Jones declaration that basically he's done with the UFC unless they dump a bank truck out in his in his driveway. Yeah. Well. As you said, we had theorized at the time that maybe John Jones will not like it at home as much as he thinks he will. And there are only so many new hobbies you can pick up. Like you can get into mountain biking and stuff like that, uh, you know, do some skateboarding or whatever you want to do. But eventually you're going to be like, shit, I'm bored. I, I, I want to go back out and fight and make some more money again. So, uh, yeah, the, the idea to me now, though, that. I don't have any interest in seeing another John Jones versus DC fight at any weight. Like I just, I feel like I've seen it. I don't have a lot of unanswered questions about how that's going to go, especially now that Daniel Cormier is starting to look a little bit more like a 41 year old man in some ways. Like I just, I don't need to see it again. Like not, not in a box, not with a Fox. You know what I'm saying? If we're going to get John Jones into this conversation, then it should be a conversation about John Jones versus Stipe Miocic on some champ versus champ shit, Chad. Like that's the kind of thing that I could actually get legitimately excited about. I would be pissed off as all hell if I'm Francis Ngannou, but 
like that is if you're going to not do Stipe and Nganu rematch, if that's not going to be the next thing you do, the only good reason is because you're going to you see an opportunity to make Stipe versus John Jones, and everybody makes a ton of money off that. Yeah. Do you remember the old uh, Sports Center commercial around Y2K when uh, Mark McGuire was like destroying the Sports Center office with his baseball bat and the lights were flashing on and off? It was chaos and people were running around. And then Charlie Steiner grabs the camera and he's got his tie around his head and he says, come with me if you want to live. Basically, follow me to freedom, I think is what he says. Uh, that's what Francis Ngannou would be doing if you don't give him the next title <laughs> shot yes. at the UFC office buildings. He's destroying the place. And just causing mayhem. So well, and you heard Dana White afterwards say, like, Nganu is next. Like, Nganu has earned it. You can't deny this Take guy. Take it to like, the bank. <laughs> right now, all Jermaine Sterling is somewhere, just like reading a book, and all of a sudden he's like, "Wait, what?" His just head pops up. Just like, did Dana White just promise someone a title <laughs> shot? <laughs> that does not sound to me like a guy who is open to new negotiations with John Jones about a heavyweight move. That sounds to me like a guy being like, Hey, you, you want more money or you're not going to heavyweight. Fine. Like we don't need you at heavyweight. We got options there right now. Like you will fight for your contracted money in your contracted division. And that's fine with us. We we're we do not need to try to convince you to do anything different. I mean, it probably says that more than it says Francis Ngannou is definitely next. Right. Like well, it's probably more of a shot across the bow at John Jones than it is a reassuring statement intended to soothe Francis Ngannou. Yeah. Well, and like we said before, you don't want to be the guy who has to go over to Francis Ngannou's house and let him, you know, be like, hey, you're not getting the title shot. And by the way, we need that equipment back that you borrowed from the Performance Institute. Like that's that's the most unenviable job you can imagine. Like Francis Ngannou is going to be pissed he didn't get that title shot next. And I do agree that he's earned it. Like, I understand you 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 get the sh- title shot kind of early on in his ascent, but then he had to go back into the mix, and then he did, and he just knocked everybody's fucking heads off the way he does, and now he's back. Like now he's he's right back in that spot as the number one guy. I don't see how you can ignore him, and I I honestly want to see that fight. Stipe versus Ngannou two seems like it'll be more interesting than Stipe versus Ngannou one. Yeah, since we're 40 minutes into this thing and we've done a grand total of one listener mail question, let's do this one from Craig Barube, who writes, so the UFC UFC won't institute gloves because they can't make money on the patents they don't own. Okay. With the understanding of heartless capitalism put aside, aren't there some other solutions here, fellas, like immediate point deductions? These refs aren't therapists or investigators trying to figure out intent. That's an absolute ridiculous assertion. Just take a point. It doesn't matter if it was meant or not. But that's what happened. Pretty sure the guy who got poked gives zero fucks if it was intended, just that his eye is blurry, watery, or worse yet, useless. Furthermore, uh, why can't we just use the fucking replay? Uh, Why does the UFC MMA in general act like its rules are centuries old and sacred? I think the average person is older than the UFC at this point, so it should be a sport more open to change when needed. Why can't we figure this shit out during the five-minute break that the fighters get. Lastly, why is all this on the ref? Like sure in the cage, the ref is necessary, but what about a different kind of ref that watches the fights in real time and has the authority to take points, call in the docks, etc. when the in the cage ref understandably misses shit could we, uh, could be between rounds too, but to not to delay action, uh, thoughts. Uh, I actually, I don't hate the idea of having more than one ref. I think that, uh, all of this stuff, all of these rule changes, 
are easy when you're firing off an email or talking about it on your podcast and very, very hard once you try to put them in action in an actual cage fight. Uh, but it did cross my mind when I was watching this fight, like maybe there should be another ref outside the, the, the cage who is watching on a monitor who can say, Hey man, that was an eye poke. And then like what you do from there, I honestly don't know. I don't know what the remedy is after you've identified the eye poke, but I think you get into a very, you get into almost a, an equally dangerous position if you start taking points for every eye poke. Yeah. Well, I don't know. It would not have materially changed anything in this fight. If we start taking points for eye pokes, right? Sure, because they both did it. They both get, gave one up. Like you would, you just end. Like I think some of this. Like I, I agree that there are ways that we can make the rules better, and that we could just we could commit ourselves more to just getting it right, which is not what a lot of in practice our rules do in MMA. Like we've talked about before, that most uh, like the whole reason Dundaso works as a strategy is because MMA is set up to keep the fight going. Like we don't want to stop and have too many long delays. We don't want to have unsatisfactory endings. We don't want to feel like the referee is the one deciding the fight. Like the, all the rules are meant to just like rush you back into action and let's get some kind of finish that feels real. Like, and it feels like it is decided by the fighters. And it, it like, it seems like that's, what we end up doing a lot of times with something like this with an eye poke or the ref's like, you know, I didn't see it. And he can't see them all. Like, especially the fighters are moving around. Sometimes he's just not going to have the angle and an eye poke can happen so quickly. And it just doesn't look like anything in real time when you see it all the time. And like sometimes the, the reaction is a little bit delayed too. So it's a, like it's really hard to just expect that the ref is going to always see the eye poke. And, yeah. But I mean, I think – when the question that we ultimately get down to is what do we want to do about it? Like it's, I'm all for like, Hey, let's come up with ways. If it's more refs and more use of instant replay to figure out what is, what actually happened and uh, you know, take that time to, to get the call right. But then what do we do? Do we, are we issuing no contests a lot more often? Are people getting disqualified more often? Like the point thing wouldn't really make much of a difference here. I, the question of like what to do about these fouls, like that is the the big issue that we have a hard time confronting. It seems. Yeah. Because of that, I wonder if the shortest distance between us and, and not eradicating, but lessening the frequency of eye pokes in this sport really is in a, in a equipment solution. Uh, you know, whether it is the gloves that make it harder to poke someone in the eye or, or everyone's out there wearing eyeglasses, uh, or, you know, Marshmallow FC is still an idea that I would gladly sell to the UFC where everyone is just out there with marshmallows on their fingers. Uh, hilarity ensues in every heavyweight fight, of course, because someone's eating those marshmallows <laughs> off his opponent's <laughs> fingers, right? Uh, but it just seems like uh, it, it would be easier, potentially easier, I should say, to like have a an equipment solution than a rules solution because yeah. the rules solution is fraught. And the equipment solution, if you could come up with one, has has at least the uh, the possibility of being somewhat cut and dried. Yeah, I, the the idea that like Joe Rogan has been talking about curved gloves for what feels like my entire life, like you know that, that maybe if we just get some better kind of gloves out there, we could solve this whole problem. At this point, if it turns out to be that easy, and it we, and it took us this long to do it, I'll be pissed off. 
Like if we think of all like the fights where this has been a problem, if it turns out that all we had to do was just modify the gloves a little bit and we, and that we might've known about that solution for years and years and years and did nothing, then, then we're the stupidest sport in the world, which could very well be true. Could make a case. All right, let's do this question from Clubber Lang who writes, I hear O'Malley's corner thought this was an early stoppage, which is mind blowing to me. I mean, as I saw him limping on one fucking knee, ankle, leg, set of ligaments, I kept thinking, oh man, if he survives this, I hope his corner stops the fight. The man clearly couldn't move. Surviving the round would have been an incredible feat, but going back out would have been the dumbest fucking thing. He's too young and there is no reason to risk something even worse happening just because he's a warrior. I get why uh, Sugar would want to keep fighting. That makes sense. But shouldn't the corner have been preparing to stop this thing? Herb made the right call. Thoughts. So Ben, clearly... uh, Sean O'Malley suffers his first professional defeat against Marlon Chito Vera here in the co-main event of UFC 252. Uh, now 12-1 is Sean O'Malley, and it was a situation where uh, he – did we get an update, an injury update on him? Did we know what happened to his leg? Yeah, I saw that. Uh, I saw Ariel Hawani tweeting that they had done an x-ray and that there was no fracture but uh, they think there might be like tendon or ligament damage and he's going to get an MRI next so they don't no answer yet on exactly what happened. Yeah. It was similar almost to the Michael Chandler thing yeah. where you just kind of roll your ankle. I saw Michael Chandler tweeted about it on fight night. Like, ah, oh, I know how that works. That like when you, you know, can make cause the nerves in your uh, leg to temporarily go dead when you roll your ankle like that. Uh, so, I mean, hopefully that's what it is. Hopefully it's not something really terrible that will sideline Sean O'Malley for a long period of time. But like uh, it certainly made this particular fight very weird. Um, it looks to me like he maybe even injured it earlier than the uh, than the exchange where he actually kind of rolls the 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 foot and like almost falls down. There was an exchange like a minute or so before that up against the fence where he seemed to kind of stumble or like, like lose where he his got footing. Kicked. Yeah, because he kicked and he uh, and he went back to, to change his stance after getting kicked, and then it seemed like his his leg was unsteady after that, like right after yeah. that kick, and that seemed like that's what I thought that he hurt, and like that creates a different idea of like what went on in the fight too. If it's is at first, it seems like, did he just injure his leg? It's like a freak thing, but it's like, if your opponent kicks you in such a way that then leads to you to injuring your leg, it's like, I mean, he did that. Like he, right. he gets credit. Which is for the Brent of, premise thing, right? Yeah. Like when, when Chandler got injured, it was basically because Brent premise was kicking the shit out of his calves. Yeah. Well, here's my, uh, my provocative statement or question to okay. you, Chad yes, Dennis, prime about Fedor this fight. Or O'Malley. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> um, was O'Malley winning? Would he have won if he hadn't lost? If like in, in a three minute fight or like, <laughs> or like I mean, you're, you're, you're asking me to extrapolate this thing over the rest of the 15 minutes. Like that's kind of a tall task there. Like he was doing pretty good, right? He was doing his Sean O'Malley thing. He was right. moving around the cage. He was kicking. Uh, he was looking good. He was, he was, uh, throwing fluid punching combinations. He was in this thing because I think matchmakers thought he would beat Marlon Vera. Uh, I think maybe we forget how good Marlon Vera is at times, but uh, uh, like, I don't know if he would have won if he hadn't lost possibly potentially like he looked, he looked like the, the sugar show to me uh, until he got hurt. Let me rephrase it then. Did you learn anything from this fight, either about Cheeto Vera or about Sean O'Malley? Um, I mean, I think it's a reminder that Marlon Vera is better than we think he is. Uh, I know we have a question on that here in this listener mail thing from from Viscera. I assume uh, 
mid nineties WWE star viscera with six finishes in his last seven is a time to call Chito Vera bootleg Davidson Figueredo. Uh, like Marlon Vera is a good fighter, man. And, and the thing that struck me during the tale of the tape, like only two years older than Sean O'Malley, like uh, himself, quite a young guy rolled into this fight on the heels of that loss to Song Yudong, but before that had won, I think five in a row uh, and 16, six and one overall now. So like Marlon Vera is a, a, a good fighter, man. Uh, I don't know if you can celebrate like you won the Super Bowl uh, in this fight when the other guy got hurt the way he did, but I do understand him feeling like he'd been counted out. Like this clearly wasn't a fight that the UFC sets up to get into the Cheeto Vera business. Uh, it was a fight that was supposed to make Sean O'Malley look good. I understand how that would uh, tweak your feelers if you were a, if you were a professional fighter. And so I think it's okay to feel like, Hey man, you shortchanged me and look, I got it. But like, it also is a little bit weird to see guys jumping on the cage and shouting at corners and running all over the place. Uh, shouting about it when like eh, the other guy did get hurt. Yeah, but I mean, it's possible that he didn't really realize at that moment the extent of like how much the injury played it because it's not like he went down, grabbed his leg, and then we called a fight on that. Like he was, yeah. he was definitely hurting. But like we are hearing about it, we're hearing the commentary and everything. And then when he goes down, uh, Vera jumps on him, elbows him in the head, and gets pulled off by the ref. Like to him in, in that moment, it might felt like you TKO the guy, like you went in there and like you. You hit him until the ref told you to stop, and like maybe later you realize, like, uh, okay, fine, the injury. I mean, the the idea of like questioning it as an early stoppage, like, I didn't see Sean O'Malley complain right after it was stopped. What I saw him do was roll over on his side and grab his leg and, and lay there for a while, and then he can't even really stand up for the like official announcement, and he's being cart like all that stuff shows me it, like that's a fight that did not need to continue on anymore. Uh, how, General rule of thumb is when your dude leaves the cage on a stretcher, it was probably not an early stoppage. Yeah. That's uh, how about this question from Vladimir Smicer? One thing before we move on, though, let's just let's make sure we mention the ground and pound from Marlon Vera was fucking hard. Yeah. Like, I don't you, you can say, like, maybe he celebrated a little bit too much. Maybe he won because the other guy hurt himself. But let's not shortchange Marlon Vera on the elbows from the top. Once O'Malley was on the ground, that shit was nasty. And he's a, you know, he's a, a capable and, and talented fighter. Vladimir Spicer says, JDS, where is your BJJ? In the buildup to this fight, JDS spoke about being well-rounded, having better speed for being lighter. We saw decent movement, a couple good jabs, low kicks, then boom, that wild looping overhand right into thin air. And soon it's good night and the shake of the head while sitting on the mat, three defeats in a row. Why don't we see his ground game? ego bad game plan from coaches he's a black belt for fuck's sake we know he likes to box and knock people out and out cold frightening jds was great at that his three defeats have come against high level opponents sure as a fan i just find it frustrating that he doesn't make use of the tools at his disposal what do you make of this yeah you know on fight night i was watching the pay-per-view i got a shout out sean sheehan from severe mma because I believe it was at the close of the first round or like toward the end of the first round here of, of Junior Dos Santos versus Jerzino Rosenstrike that uh, Sheehan tweeted, like, I'm trying to find it, although he's got too many soccer tweets here for me to scroll down through all of them. Uh, he tweeted something like, good first round for Junior Dos Santos in advance of the uh, of like the mandatory second round stoppage loss or something like that. Like, <laughs> he basically called this thing cold. exactly perfectly. I know, but that's like, that's 
to Junior Dos Santos at this point, man. Like he goes out there. He doesn't look out of place. He doesn't look like he shouldn't be there. He looks like he's still got the skills. He's doing okay against the biggie boy. They're having a competitive fight. And then sometime in the second round, the man's face gets touched uh, and he gets knocked out, like, which when you get hit by the biggie boy, it can happen to anybody. That dude hits hard. But like it seems like we have an established pattern now with Junior Dos Santos that that it doesn't normally spell good things for people when they start to happen this way. And should should he use his, his grappling more? Should it be like – you know, utilize that black belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu probably, but like we know the guy that Junior Dos Santos is at this point. We know the kind of fighter that he is and the guy that he likes to be. And like that, that hasn't been really in his DNA in from what we've seen from him in his, in his UFC career at any point. So uh, you're asking the guy to like kind of reinvent himself near the tail end of, of his career. Uh, and at 36 years old, like not saying he couldn't do it, but I'm also I also don't just don't think it's in the cards, right? And you could say that about a lot of people. There's tons of people that like have grappling uh, skill sets that they could use more. You could probably say it about Daniel Cormier. Like if Daniel Cormier goes out against Stipe Miocic and he's just like, all right, I'm just going to wrestle this guy for 25 minutes, he might have a better shot. But like that's just not what they do. That's not in their DNA. And frankly, that's not the landscape. That's not what we want in the landscape of the sport. Yeah, yeah. See, that's imagine going back to. 2005 and telling Chad Dundas that what we're going to have is a, a conversation about how people don't use their wrestling enough in MMA. That's a big problem. Nobody's out there shooting enough takedowns. Um, how about this question from the Green Falcon who says, very succinct, succinct question here. Biggie Boy versus Derek Lewis is all that I have to say. Yeah, I saw that bandied about on social media on Saturday night also, and I'm I'm here for it, man. That's the, you know, it, uh, it kind of stinks that we would be leaving Curtis Blades kind of out in the in the wilderness uh, if everything played out this way. If it was like if it was in Engano Stipe for the title, and if it was uh, Biggie Boy uh, Derek Lewis, then uh, Curtis Blades is probably he's probably wondering what's up. But at the same time, uh, you can't tell me you don't want to watch the Biggie Boy fight the Black Beast. That's that would be all the fun right there. I mean. I'm not going to sit here and tell you that. I'm that I, I will not say that to you right now. It also seems though, like man, are, you look around. Are we having like, are we having some actual fun at heavyweight these days? Like I know you could still yeah. look after after like the top two or three and be like, uh, a lot of these are just like big guys who can hit hard once. But I don't know. You you look around and it seems like there are fun fights to be made in the, the 265 pound division. And that is not often the case in MMA. Right. That's, I mean, given that we're talking about heavyweight, I will take that walking away. Yeah. That's, that's as good as we can get. Most, most times at this division is to have a handful of fun uh, matchups at hand and, and like a couple of meaningful ones as well. So I'm all for it, man. How about this? I know we're coming up an hour, so maybe we should uh, taper off the discussion here, but this question from Doug Bradley who says, sometimes the hard decisions have to be made. The CME consulting group has been brought in to release one fighter from UFC 252. Who's getting their walking papers? Now, a lot of people, Chad Dundas, would look at this right now and go, Junior Dos Santos did just lose his third in a row. What do you do yeah. with Junior Dos Santos? I mean, obviously, I don't think the UFC is going to 
gift wrap Junior Dos Santos for Bellator or God forbid Bare Knuckle FC. But what do you do with Junior Dos Santos at this point in his career if you're the UFC? Yeah, but he's one of those dudes that you just keep around, right? Like I understand what you're saying, but but like you said, you don't want him showing up in Bellator. You could if you're Scotty Cox, you could still do something with Junior Dos Santos. I think that especially at heavyweight where you pretty much need all the bodies you can get. I think JDS probably has a job at the, in the UFC as long as he, as long as he wants one. Although like all things being equal, I think that's uh that's a, uh, a good position answer. What about Ashley Yoder though, Ben two and I believe five in her last seven fights, all of them in the UFC currently on the heels of a uh, two fight losing streak. Well, let me just say, as as an aside to any conversation like this, uh, I don't really want to see anybody get yeah, cut. Not really. <laughs> like ever, especially in this sport where people aren't getting paid very much money and people are just out here scratching out a living. I don't want to be the guy who's pulling people's pink slips. Uh, but if we had to, like I think those are a couple of, of possibilities. Um, I would say no to Ashley Yoder because I interviewed her once and she was really nice. Um, so well, what about Junior Dos Santos? He's the nicest person in the world, yeah. and you are out here I know. just like a bloodthirsty, you're a corporate <laughs> bloodsucker, Ben, out here <laughs> going to Junior Dos Santos' house and telling his kids dad doesn't have a job anymore. No, he's the nicest dude. We know if Junior Dos Santos got cut, it's he's getting a, a you up text message from Scotty Cox like immediately. So I'm not worried about Junior Dos Santos not having a job. How about as this? As soon as the why they do that tweet hits the airwaves, Scotty Cox is, is texting Junior Dos Santos. How about this though? John Dodson. He loses yeah. to Marab Valesjili. He's, it's, you know, he had a win in the one before this one, but now he's lost three of his last four. And also not always a lot of fun to watch these days. You know, like John Dodson, like, if you beat him, sometimes it can be hard to have a good fight against John Dodson. Hard to have like an yeah. entertaining fight against John Dodson. Yeah. And again, I'm just, it's a conversation I'm not comfortable with, man. <laughs> we don't, don't want to make you uncomfortable. Man. I'm not the hatchet man. Leave it to Ben Folks. Some people just – Like George Clooney in that movie where he goes fires people. <laughs> he, but see, he was very compassionate about that, Chad. That's yeah, you would maybe, not be like that. Yeah, no. Yeah. I'm, I'm, Look, Junior, you're done. That's folks on the phone. I'm not even taking the Virginia Slim out of my mouth, as I tell you, that you're washed up, kid. Yeah, just heartbreaking. No one, people, people look out the windows. They see folks come and they start pulling the 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 shades and locking the doors. Get the kids down in the root cellar. Pretend we're not here. He'll go away if we're quiet enough. He'll go away. If he can't find you, he can't fire you. You know, that's a rule. What else we got here? We got anything else that's uh, that's knocking on our door here that we need to answer? No, absolutely not. Okay, okay. Uh, well, that is going to wrap it up then this week for the co-main event podcast. Uh, of course, we will be back on Wednesday over at the Patreon page for the live chat as well as the first episode of the Watchmen Rewatch Show. If that sounds fun. You should jump on board and come see us there. Uh, this will be back. On Friday for the Power Hour this weekend, I believe you got another UFC event headlined by Pedro Munoz versus Frankie Edgar, Ovin St. Prue versus Alonzo Menafield, also on the card, as well as some other some other fights, again, from the Apex down there in Las Vegas. That one will be on uh, ESPN, so you can check it out there. We'll probably end up talking about it a little bit one week from today. But as for right now, we are done. We are through. We are out. 
You know, it wasn't until I went back and started uh, watching the Watchmen series that I remembered Don Johnson is really having a late career resurgence. Who, yeah. who saw that coming? You know, right? And I'm not going to do spoilers here on the on the podcast, but like you see, Don Johnson is in this show, and then things go differently than you might expect. They do, right? Like, oh, Don Johnson's going to be in this show, and and really kind of kind of knocking it out of the park in his role. One of these guys that. Uh, you know, 20 years or so after his uh, his main run on television, turns out maybe he's actually a good actor. Yeah. That's his skills. Yeah. But he's like the, the best case scenario that Rick Dalton envisioned for himself. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. 